This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos. I am Joshua Wilson, and with me today, as usual, is Russell Rhodes and our special guest, Michael Gayad. Michael Gayad is a portfolio manager, fund manager, uh, award-winning um, research, because uh, I say research artist, research writer, I, I like artist, 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 artist yes, no, a musician, speaking of, speaking of artists, a musician as well, and uh, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. And a lot of other things. Uh, welcome to the show today, Michael. I have to say, uh, uh, because you have got that like really deep, strong voice, I need more introductions with your. Maybe I should get like AI to train. Anyway, you just, just, just give me a script board. and I'll I'll I'll, I'll tear so into that, it. You know, I'm just saying it's like uh, it sounds good. You know, there's a lot of studies that show that um, the deeper one's voice is, the more authoritative they come across. Uh, so you are authoritative as fuck. Uh, <laughs> well, you've also met me in person. That might be influencing your your thoughts as well. You're you're you're, you're a man. I would not want to mess with <laughs> that way. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, it's funny totally. you say that because our our intern said, "How big do you think that guy is?" <laughs> That's what she said about you because she hasn't met you in person. So That's, uh, yeah. we're all afraid, Doctor Josh. That's- that's yes. funny. So I actually have a little bit of a story here that I'll, that I'll tell you. So I, I met a girl during COVID. She had um, followed me on social media. And of course, it's not every day that a, that a pretty girl follows me on, on social media. And so, of course, I followed her back and started t- talking to her. And we went on a, went on a, on a date and it did not come up Uh how big a boy I am. And she is five, four and petite. And so I got to the restaurant before she did and I'm sitting at the table and right as she gets to the table, I, I see her and I stand up and all of a sudden she gives me this, like a little jerk of, I had no idea what she was to be expecting. And of course I pointed it out and she said, no, I, I no, it's, it's fine. It's fine that you're, you know, a sass watch basically. Um, but I did not know. And apparently she's like, you know, I looked at your social media. There was nothing on your social media to, to, uh, to suggest that you're six foot four and 270 pounds. Um, and I said, well, that's because all my photos are with my family who are also, uh, fellow Sasquatches. My, you know, my brother's, uh, my, my, my main photo there is me with my brothers. And then my brother's six, six played college football. My, my sister-in-law's five nine. He's got two sons currently playing in the Big Twelve right now, offensive line at Oklahoma State and in uh, Texas Tech, and then another another uh, large seventeen-year-old son. So yeah, looking at the at the family of Sasquatches, I, I blended right in and gave no indication uh, on social media. <laughs> all about relative perspective. It's uh, it's 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 all relative. We we all take up the same amount of space on the on the screen, but. Yeah, welcome, welcome to the show, Michael. I've been looking forward to talking to you. You know, I, I was actually just looking at your Twitter 
before before the show, and it looks like you've you've made a new post on there, basically setting setting some expectations, my friend, uh, on send some expectations of, of, of how your social media is to be run going forward. And, you know, you, um, you've got almost three quarters of a million followers on Twitter and I'm sure thousands more on, on other, uh, on other platforms. And what, uh, I got to ask what, what caused this, uh, this post to come about where you've kind of, I guess, drawn a line in the sand about how you're going to do your social media so far. And, Talk, talk to me more about that. I think Russell was trolling me uh, on the, was uh, I? the day before. Right? <laughs> he was sending some troll messages. And uh, now, look, okay, so so first of all, the um, let's take a step back for a second. Social media and all the stuff that I do is a means yeah. to end, right? So I'm actually, as much as the term is social is in social media, I'm actually very much a, an introvert. I'm not very good at small talk, right? I do the, the audience building because I'm you know, hopeful that, as as the different initiatives I'm involved with grow, people become aware of that. And, you know, you have to be frequent in content and especially on Twitter, be loud in the way you frame things, right? So as the account has grown, as you can imagine, there's always going to be uh, people that are not exactly of the best of intents uh, who will try to go after you and say things and mis misalign uh, uh, your way of thinking with theirs and say things about you, which are just not true. So it's like, I decided basically after having blocked, you know, pretty much everybody and their mothers on Twitter, as I like to say, uh, let me just go right to the source and just prevent people, unless those I follow them, to reply. Uh, some people seem to be annoyed by that, but, you know, listen, you guys, I'm sure, know this, that your most important asset is your mental health. And the reality is that I could give a shit what people have to say, but if I'm being berated with uh, comments which are nasty and not true, and uh, targeted in how they're trying to make me feel while trying to do my day job, that's where I have to draw a line, right? Because it's a distraction, right? So it's more that, but the um, social media is great uh, when you're trying to build a business. It, uh, but it, of course, like most things, it has its downsides. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you talked about your persona on there, and I, I think I may understand what you're talking about, but tell me more about what you mean about your, you, know, you said, make no mistake about it, what you see on Twitter is a, persona and it's purposeful. So it sounds like this is kind of, there's a marketing idea method behind this madness. Tell me more about that. Okay. So, you know, I've got the lead lag report, the research, and then separately I've got the funds, right? Two different legal entities, two different business lines that, that I do. Um, the mutual fund, the ATAC rotation fund peaked in assets early 2021. And that's when I would argue the bear market started. So 2020, that mutual fund had a hell of a year. It was up 72%. Risk on, risk off, got the COVID crash spot on. And then as most things peaked in 2021, the mutual fund started struggling and going through a drawdown, which it's still in from those peaks, you know, from that peak in 2020. Have Roro and JoJo, all the funds have the same dynamic. They all rely on long duration treasuries to be the risk off safe haven, which means a year like last year, was brutal because when you run rules-based funds and all you can do is be in treasuries, you can do nothing but take the pain. Now, you're not going to be interesting on Twitter when you're in a drawdown. You're not going to be interesting for people tracking your analysis if all you need to do is look at your fund's performance in an anomalous year and say, why should I pay attention to this guy? He doesn't know what he's talking about. 
So I did a pivot in the way I started framing things on Twitter in particular, because it does work with Twitter, which is be loud, aggressive, counter knuckleheads. Uh, because what else can I do if I'm going to build the audience, but for a moment in time, people think I've lost credibility because of the funds. I still have to be out there in a way that might give them uh, people something else that they want to see, which is a degree of entertainment and sarcasm and cursing all this stuff. So I see the term persona purposely, right? It's like, I was not always like this on Twitter, but because of what happened, which was so horrendous in my own funds, it's like, all right, fine. If, if I'm going to have to fight to survive in terms of the uh, attention span of uh, social media people, I better do it outside of just look at how great my strategies have performed. Because obviously it's not been the case. Yeah, there's a certain amount of just, um, you know, I think if you're experiencing jealousy or you just like to poke fo poke folks that are doing well you know you're you're almost like sitting and waiting you know quietly while someone is succeeding and then they go through a rough patch which is going to happen with a rules based fund that's the nature of the beast you are going to get uh the sword you live by is a sword you're going to die by eventually as well and that that's interesting to think about that way you know when you when you start this thinking about this number of people you say misconstruing things and start attacking one one personally why is it you do you think that that is you mentioned you've kind of changed on social media over the last year or maybe two years is this when the, when the profanity starts because i think when you when you start bringing profanity into the conversation that is another kind of polarizing thing of just the choice to it's one thing saying something, but another thing bringing in, in profanity into it. Yeah, it's funny because so I'm, I'm, again, people seem to think that I'm not purposeful, but I am with all this stuff. So first of all, the um, I'm a big fan of behavioral finance. I've done a lot of studies on psychology. And there are studies that show that people perceive not just low voices as authoritative, but people that curse <laughs> as authoritative. <laughs> this is an absolute fact. It's not, I'm not going to There's a study that shows that. There's actually a link between uh, the perspective of not just uh, cursing and authoritativeness, but also intelligence level, right? Not that I'm necessarily super smart, but there's this sort of aspect of it, which, you know, I think there's a degree of, of truth to it from the studies. And even like when I would be on CFA, uh, doing CFA chapter presentations, like every now and then I'll throw in a curse word just to wake the crowd up. Right? I mean, it's part of the sort of just kind of getting some jarring response. Now, um, it's true. There's this kind of line out there that your Twitter uh, self is different than your Instagram self, which is different from your Facebook self, which is different from your LinkedIn self, which is different from your true self. And that's because certain tones work better in certain platforms. So one tweet in particular, which was really kind of my only defense for what happened last year as things were happening, showed the, the drawdown uh, in long duration treasuries having been more than equities. And I showed how historically that looked. This is before the drawdown in equities was over in October, or at least was uh, bottoming. And I said in the tweet, uh, you know, first time in history, long duration treasuries are down more than equity. Wake the fuck up. Me putting that wake the fuck up terminology phrase caused that tweet to go viral and have four million impressions, which was the ultimate defense for my own strategies, what I was going through, because I'm in long duration treasuries, rules based in these funds. So my point is that a lot of people... They may get turned off by the cursing, but the reality is the cursing does get the engagement. And if my objective is to try to get as many people to be aware of something as possible, because I'm trying to not only fight back against narratives, but also show that what we've gone through is very unusual, 
well then you know from a from a compliantly machiavellian standpoint the ends justify the means you know i developed i did the same thing on twitter i actually ran sibo's twitter for a while uh which really helped me compliment myself you know um but i i just cannot get into twitter twitter discussions like you do i i just it, it i i just don't have it in me uh, if anybody well, and I've, really, and I've also had patience for it too, man. It's like I, I just, I just do not have the patience for it, and um, and and I, I typically, well, in, but when I was at SIBO, uh, if anybody said anything slightly critical toward me, compliance would block them. Oh, My yeah, totally. block list is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would meet people at conferences. You blocked me on Twitter, man. What was that all about? I, said, I don't know. I don't even. <laughs> So I got to go well, through my blog list. Yeah, I'm somewhere. very, I'm very aggressive with this. So it's like, I, I make it a point and people are like, Oh, you know, you're shutting down dissenters. It's like, no, no, no. You know, you insulting me or bringing up my father because you don't agree with my conclusion as opposed to going after my process is a different animal. Right. Also. Exactly. So I'll make it a point to not just, because the way that Twitter algorithm works is that which gets the most reach is that which is, uh, has the most number of likes and retweets. So, not only do I then, you know, find those that are going after me, I actually try to identify who's going after me. I then block all the people that like and retweet those tweets, not for anything except that I don't want, you know, I, I believe I, you know, if you engage with a troll, you're a troll, right? If you're amplifying a troll's message, you're a troll. I don't want you in my life. So, you know, it, it, to me, it's it's very, you have to almost go scorched earth with this stuff because especially as you get larger and larger, it does matter, right? And it's like, you can't, you can't discount this stuff. So in the spirit of uh, technical difficulties, we had some major ones in the middle of the last episode. So this random pick back up is two days later and us resuming our conversation. In the middle of a conversation, that's where we're all dressed slightly differently if you're watching us on video. So picking up the conversation with, with Michael Gayad, you know, he had, uh, we were in the middle of a conversation talking about well, his uh, his provocative nature on on Twitter, and yeah, you know, I was curious, you know, Michael, when you were talking about basically the the ends justify the means. You know, if your objective is to get as many people aware of something as possible, then being provocative, the algorithm likes provocative people, and the, and the algorithm likes provocative people because people like and share, and that's the currency of social media that amplifies your message. Um, but you know, being in a, in a, in a, as a fund manager, you know, your um, the 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 positives of greater attention reach. They also come with some negatives. You know, um, this this kind of thing comes up in politics and pretty much anything else where where people are being provocative. How do you know um, when you're doing more damage than good, or the good that you get from the from being a provocateur outweighs? Uh, the damage that you may be doing. And do you see that as damage? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good question. And I'd say, first of all, just broadly two things, right? One is uh, we had a president that was much more provocative. And he was certainly not professional and the guy still had his, uh, his hardcore fans. Um, but also I think it's, I think it's an interesting question sort of knowing where the line is. So first of all, I never go after anybody. It's me oftentimes just, going after those that kind of cast the first stone, right? And and using that as an example of a way of thinking that's incorrect, at least in my view. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like that old saying, right? The one that wins in, in the fight isn't the strongest, it's the craziest. So <laughs> if somebody comes after me, I go after them with a much harder magnitude. But but it, I'll tell you, like in the, in, the, in the fund management business, 
the reality is what closes is performance. The reality is it doesn't matter how a portfolio manager uh, thinks or speaks, you know, that natural uh, inclination to buy that which is going up and to the right trumps, pun intended, everything, right? So it's an interesting question. The, the communication is important because it helps to explain why things are not going the way you hoped they would, right? That's really what you're trying to amplify. You're trying to address the issue of what's not working and why it's not working to explain it. Because nobody cares why it's working. They just care that it's working, right? And as long as I'm still being you know, professional outside of Twitter, which anybody that talks to me and knows me knows it's a totally different act on Twitter than the real self, right? I mean, I, th- I don't, I don't worry too much about that life line being crossed because one, I don't think I've crossed it. Two, even if I did, as long as it's still compliant, and people would say, "Well, that's over the line." The reality is, sometimes you have to be a little bit over the line to get people to to wake up. I can, I can see that, Russell. Oh, I was just going to say, um, do, do, do you have anybody that's that's keeping an eye on what you do, or are you f- totally because when I was at Sevo, um, every little thing I did, you know, it, it, I, I would, I get word parsing from people that I worked with. Um, and so I was just wondering if there, do you ever get any pushback from the employ, from your employers on things like that? Well, to be clear, the, the, the online social media content and the lead lag report is all through a separate disclosed outside of your which is lead lag publishing LLC. So all the public facing stuff is through a publishing, I think, which has its own legitimate revenue stream and uh, has itself been growing. Um, this is the benefit of having a rules-based approach, though, right? Because when it comes to the funds, which are under, you know, title financial group, rules-based means they run the same way, whether I'm dead or alive. I may have made that point before a couple of days ago. And that means that whatever I say is irrelevant because what I say has nothing to do with the actual decision-making of what rotations take place. You're not you're not talking the book. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's it. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. That kind of side question. Yeah. Everybody talks up their book. Like you, it's it's nonsense to think whatever you're, yeah right. So whatever the book is, some people are perma bulls. They're talking up their book from the bull side. Some people are perma bears. They're talking up their book from the bear side. Um, I, I my style because of the approach is much more biased towards not markets going up uh, or down. It's markets going up and down with a degree of violence in the movement. Meaning, you know, high volatility, flight to safety trade, treasuries counter that volatility in equities. And hopefully the signals get a good portion of that right, in which case suddenly, you know, the strategies are broadly up or at least down a lot less while markets are collapsing. And then hopefully it gets back in the markets at a lower level. But I need to, so my bias is the sequence. I hate smooth environment, right? I hate I hate environments where it's a bull market characterized by just a particular asset class like large caps because that doesn't help my strategies. And candidly, it's not really that interesting if you're putting content out if the only thing people want to talk about is the same four or five stocks. Yeah, it, it's actually hard to tell people when when you should really be paying attention because people choose to pay attention when they choose to pay attention. And, you know, like you mentioned before, good performance. Well, you don't have to explain good performance. You just rationalize it if, you know, people can, um, you know, this is like self-directed investors and whatever they're doing is proof that they know what they're doing, uh, even if it's a tiny sample size. And... And so you can you can always rationalize that, but when when things aren't going as planned, then you know, are you just quote unquote being defensive, or are you really putting education out there? You know, are you are you really are, are is this really helping things, or are we just defending ourselves and 
you know, talking ourselves out of a corner or something like that, you know, and I think, and that's, and that is the, that's the, what you agree to when you go into a rules-based strategy is you will live by these, you will, you will work when these work and, you know, you, you're obey the rules, the, the rules don't obey you. And that's very, um, very tough in a, in a situation like this. I just think that, you know, when you're trying to communicate these things and you've got individuals um, that are, I guess, antagonizing you or maybe just liking to see a dip, especially when you had such a strong year before with these things working very well, um, you know, that that decision to engage and that decision to block is becomes a big part of of of, of your brand. You know, and that's interesting. I, I, I admire that about you that you're willing to say, this is who I am and I, it, it's who I am when it works and it's who I am when it doesn't, because I'm the one that chose these rules-based strategies to begin with and, yeah, and, and, and they'll work again. And obviously they've, uh, they had a, a tough period, but it feels like, it feels like they're coming out of that. Can you, can you talk, you know, you got, you kind of alluded and, um, to, and a lot of our, our listeners probably don't really know the story of your funds. So maybe, you can give us just a couple of, of, of um, you know, a minute or two of, hey, this is really what I do. This is the point of the of the funds, and this is why they performed the way they did. And kind of give us this brief history of of performance with narrative, so we can kind of pick back up and people can kind of join us that maybe don't know your your background on this. Yeah, and, and Bill, just to finish that thought that you just you just put out in the beginning, there is a difference between an excuse and an explanation. Yeah, right. That's that's a big part of this business too. So. But if you're going to provide an explanation based on historical data, you still have to get people to pay attention to the historical data, which means you have to be loud and say something and frame it in a way that gets people to want to pay attention to the data because data itself is boring, right? So, which goes back to the point of, you know, why am I loud and have this very, what seemingly looks like an unprofessional tone on Twitter and only on Twitter? It's literally because that's what helps share the explanation, gets more people to pay attention to that, right? That's a that's a big part of it. Okay, now, so I mentioned this point about the, my bias is to see volatility. So everything from my vantage point is not about equities or markets rising or falling. It's about, you know, doubt, which is volatility more broadly. Okay, so you we all know that this investment industry is beyond saturated, and we all know that everything is basically a variation of beta of, you know, uh, something it's a derivative effectively on you know the S&P's broader movement. So if you're going to be by the way just one of the things I try to do on this podcast is make some of the terms more accessible sure. to a broader audience and so when Michael says beta that's just a fancy word for saying market performance is what the if, if your if your benchmark is the S&P 500 then beta is basically saying do what the market does which is essentially indexing. So the conversation that you're entering is basically a one of that the value that a, that an active manager adds in addition to the market performance. So that would be a term called alpha, which is basically do you. So the, the question is, does an active manager add alpha is one of the core questions in investment finance is, are you just giving me the market return? Would I be just as good off to just buy a benchmark and just hold that forever? Or is there actual value in what the active manager is providing. And so what Michael's saying here is a lot, there's a lot of things that are really just beta in disguise. So I'll, I'll exactly. let you 
pick up exactly. pick up where you're at, Michael. You're you're exactly right. It's beta in disguise, you know, with a new name, but the same, you know, mechanics, right? So um and, and oftentimes it's the same performance, right? Now, by the way, it makes sense that most things would be, you know, beta like or variation of beta because that's what's worked, right? I mean, for the last decade plus, it's been one of the smoothest bull markets outside of the mid nineties. Right and outside of the COVID I mean, crisis, we've, we've, we've been we've been double digits for like what every year except for one, we, and the right, past- and we were annualized at fourteen fifteen percent, and usually yeah. it's like seven seven. Yeah. Right, so it's you know uh, it's easy okay. to sell. So, so, it's easy to sell indexes during time. during a phase like this. Yeah, right. And 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 it's not easy to sell something that's active and tactical, especially when it's rules based, because you have to explain how it works. And you have to have the right environment as a tailwind for your opportunity set for it to work. So if you're going to stand out in the investment industry, you either stand out with low to zero fees, in which case you're not going to stand out because the, the standout is Vanguard. Or you're going to stand out by doing something which is dramatically different that when it works really you know, is like a shining object, right? And and that gets the, the asset flows. And because the reality is most people chase performance, that's how you really grow, end up growing, even though it drives me absolutely insane so from that perspective the 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 underlying concept of all the strategies which all relate to these different papers i'm known for having published are 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 very simple one there are leading indicators to volatility regimes changing meaning you're entering a high volatility environment versus you're entering a low volatility environment and then two that the way to historically play that the best is with treasuries Right, so the flight to safety dynamic, which again is what failed last year, that, that, but that's at the core of it. The idea there are signals that tell you when volatility is likely to change. When volatility is changing, treasuries tend to be the best way to play it. Otherwise, you are in equities to benefit from a low volatility regime. Okay. So I launched the in the advisor as a part of before we were running separately managed accounts. We had a composite GIPS verified, and it was using utilities as a signal of volatility, the utility sector and treasuries themselves. Basically, you go back to 1920s for utilities, you go back to 1960s when it comes to treasuries. When they are strong in short-term bursts, that tends to precede higher volatility regimes for equities, right? Which is is was always a fascinating finding and also has a lot of interesting implications on asset allocation right? in terms of how do you figure out where to position. So I had this composite, GIPS verified running for separately managed accounts, 2011, using those signals to either go risk on into equities, low vol, or risk off into long duration treasuries. That strategy was up 8.5% in 2011. In 2012, was up 45%. My partner at the time and I said, okay, you know what? I'm getting in the media. The, the performance is rocking. Let's launch a mutual fund. And we had no idea what we were doing. Right? So we launched a mutual fund the day before quantitative easing three began, which is important. Okay, because the effect of QE3 and zero interest rate policy was it cut off what's called left tail risk. In other words, it cut off the real large declines because there was constantly money pumping into the system to prevent volatility from rising in a big way. So the effect of that on a strategy that's active, that's rotating offensively equities, defensively treasuries is whipsaw risk. So you keep slowing down, entering a storm. The conditions are there. The outcome is not. So you keep missing the market's upside because you get false signals because you're in an environment where the markets are smooth. 
So basically, it's saying you're, you're, like the market keeps changing the rules because you know, the, the rules keep the, the the environment in which the rules work keeps changing because quantitative easing keeps changing the keeps changing the outlook. It's it's like saying you know um, like steroids. It's like well, if you stop taking steroids, then whatever muscle building or whatever should, should slow down. Well, no, he's just pump more steroids in there and then more steroids and then more steroids. And so you can just up the steroids, right? Um, you can think of this, this is any kind of drug or sugar or anything like that. You just keep pumping more and it will, it will keep those effects. Cause as a rule, if you, if you eat a bunch of sugar, you should have a sugar crash, right? But you can kind of prop that up a little longer by continuing to eat more sugar or more, whatever, you know, whatever this drug is, you're entering your system. So the more you add of that, the more it extends it. And eventually you're saying, okay, but yeah, the more you extend it, the more the likely is going to shock back in the other direction when it finally goes in the other direction, because you can't just keep eating sugar or taking more and more steroids or however you want to want, want to do this. Right. Which is basically the return of the flight to safety trade, maybe in the form of protein when it comes to food. Right. But the, the, the but your, 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 your point, right? and, and, but it does go back to, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the market's, the rules are changing. I'd say the conditions were very, very static because the conditions were favoring low volatility. So whipsaw risk off. But then the other part of this is purposely I designed the ATAC rotation mutual fund so that when it's risk on, when utilities are weak and treasures are weak, it tries to play the right risk on. And the right risk on historically isn't large caps. The right risk on historically, at least prior to that point, were small caps. Right, higher beta, higher sensitivity, more juice to run on the upside, or uh, in emerging markets. Now, that's really important. From a take, take my my strategies out of it entirely for a second. There are only really three ways to beat the S and P. Right, if you're always going to be equities, there's only three ways to beat the S and P. You either leverage the S and P constantly, but even that's tricky because you get a couple of big drawdowns that suddenly the leverage, you know, it's kind of hard to come back. Um, you either tilt small, small caps. Or your tilts international. It's basically asset allocation, right? It's like, how do you beat the S&P? By, how do you beat the average by choosing the right average? So not only did I enter an environment where the risk offside was getting whipsawed because of the smoothness of the equity rally, it was also that the equity rally was dominated by large caps, which meant that when that fund was risk on, it would try to rotate across what looked like starting momentum in small caps, what looked like starting momentum in emerging markets. And I get whipsaw. It's like death by a thousand cuts. I get whipsaw there too. So that mutual fund only really had two good years, 2017 and then 2020. Now, if you look at those two years, what happened in 2017, what happened in 2020? 2017 was the lowest volatility year in history, going back to the like early 1920s. If you remember, that was an incredibly smooth year. This is before the trade war. Right Trump before Volmageddon and, and right, right, exactly. and, and early, early 2018. <laughs> Yeah, and that actually was with, with the C for Volmia, right? Yeah. So, because low vol tends to encourage leverage, right? And and the exact wrong things you should be doing. So, you know, fund did really was up twenty seven percent, and yet it was only in equity sixty percent of the year when it was risk on. Well, why? Because small caps when they ran, they persisted. So that helped on the risk on side. Emerging markets when they ran, that persisted. In twenty twenty, really good year because I had a risk off. You had the COVID crash. The mutual fund was correctly in long duration treasuries mid-January, stayed there until basically uh, the very last week of March, and then went all into equities. 
So it ended up 2020 up 72%. Since then, it's given it all back because the environment's been so maddening. But like, I need one of those two types of scenarios, either risk on not dominated by large caps or some volatility pulses to make the flight to safety treasury trade work. I never imagined we would be entering a cycle where large caps would be that dominant for as long and consistently as it has been, right? And that's what makes this fun business so difficult. You want to be an entrepreneur. You want to create a strategy that you believe in, that you have all the testing in. You happen to launch in a cycle that is the exact opposite of what you tend to, from the testing perspective, do well in. So what do you do? Do you keep that strategy going or do you close it? But then if you close it, you might close it the moment the cycle comes your way. And then if you start to chase the cycle, which you closed it for, for before waiting for it, maybe you re-enter at the exact wrong time again because that cycle is ending. So it's like it, there's a lot of sort of interesting kind of, I think, permutations of what happens when you're in any environment that does not favor your inherent approach. My inherent approach is rules-based, but there are plenty of people that are listening that are swing traders, that are day traders, that are doing things that they themselves have tested. But damn it, it doesn't want to work for here, the here and now. So you give up or you just keep on going through hell. My argument would be you keep going through hell because at some point, hopefully it ends. Well, that's kind of the, the hard thing about about strategies like this. Is, and you alluded to this earlier about um, you know listening. And, and it's easy to listen when you, and, and it's easy to listen. And it's easy to be convinced when something is working. Right. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm up, I'm up 40%. Bob, yeah, this works. What's your argument? Great. I believe it. Why? Cause money's in my account. Right. <laughs> That's easy. Um, it's almost like I mean, if, if this is a, a, a disclose, this is say this is dramatically over dramatized by even maybe saying that that's over dramatized. It's almost like saying when it's easiest to allocate to a strategy like this, when you most want to, it's probably you're you're probably you're wrong. You're probably wrong, and just whatever you believe is probably wrong. And when you least want to look at something like this, you're you're probably wrong. That your your emotions are playing tricks on you. You're looking at recent performance. You're you're overweighting certain things, and it's just. That's the hard thing about something like this is you're probably wrong. Yeah. Well, you, you, you want to invest, you're probably wrong. You don't want to right. invest, you're probably wrong. <laughs> no, no, you're there. And, and it's funny because the, um, I'm sorry, like Walter Deemer, one of these like quotes, legendary technicians, very, very knowledgeable and, and a lot of years of experience. He has this, this great quote. It's like, by the time it comes to buy, you won't want to. Yeah. And the thing is like the nature of this approach is that when it works, it works in a big way. There's these, there's a convexity tail risk element to the approach because when you get high volatility in equities, you get a VIX spike, you tend to see a similar type of relative spread of treasuries against equities. Again, last year was a notable exception, which we can touch, right? But but you end up having these periods where you can be lagging, 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 lagging. The mind wants to see consistency of performance when in reality there's tails in market distributions and, and there's big moves. And then suddenly one of these risk on risk off sequences hits the fund and now all the funds because they're all playing off the same concept um hopefully captures that at least a chunk of that and then suddenly undoes all the prior periods of weakness so you end up having this kind of using that term alpha you end up having this very concentrated relative outperformance and to your point people will time it incorrectly right because they're going to end up uh, chasing it after the fact when it's not a consistent phenomenon to begin with 
So, I mean, systematic approaches, you, you, you have to be long-term focused, even, even if it's an approach like you've got that I, you guys rebalance weekly, correct? Yeah. So every week there's a potential decision, right? It just from a process standpoint, uh, how did you, how'd you come up with that? And I'm, I'm going somewhere with that, I promise. Yeah. yeah on the time frame. So, so if you go back to the, the original momentum studies, a month over month momentum and 12 month momentum, um, it turns out from an interval perspective that momentum is a function of autocorrelation primarily around the, the at the start, three week time frame. So three weeks up to 26 weeks. Autocorrelation basically means the next week is more correlated is to what happened the prior week, right? That, that there's a correlation within the market's return stream. So I, I set up the weekly interval because that historically is when you tend to have more, more streaks of performance, right? And then on the, um, it's interesting, the weekly has more streaks. If you look at within the week, there's a lot more mean reversion, right? So it's like, why is that term turnaround Tuesday a thing? Because usually if you have a big down Monday, mean aversion kicks in Tuesday and you have a big up uh, Tuesday, right? And then it tends to be the same within the week. So part of this is just a function of recognizing that daily is too noisy, monthly is too lag. So weekly is kind of your sweet spot. So I recently heard, and I'm sure maybe I'm the last person in the world to hear about this, was that one of the one of the big benefits for AQR's success was that they happened to rebalance in March every year and in 2009 yeah you probably know the story better than I did uh than I do but and if they if they rebalanced in September we wouldn't even be talking about them right now there are legitimate calendar uh, turn of the calendar type effects right that they're not just hocus pocus it's it's basically structural right and the reason that it happens um although it's interesting because I've tested the same approach using instead of Friday to Friday instead of end of week to end of week we did Thursday to Thursday Wednesday to Wednesday Tuesday to Tuesday you end up roughly getting the same kind of performance obviously some variations but um, but it is, it is interesting, right? It's like, you have a lot of big firms that people think are geniuses, but they're taking advantage of something which any, any person can, can identify if they just put a little bit of work in. What specific, I, I, I know what markets you have exposure to. What, what instruments do you use to get the exposures? Cause that, so it's on ETF.com, it didn't show your holdings. So yeah. Well, for the mutual, right. For all over Roro and Jojo with the ETFs um, that uh -huh. launched in 2020, um, it, so it's all ETF. So it's yeah, you know, very it's the very basic ETF TLT. Okay, that's right. what I that that would have been my guess. Right. But IWM, EM in the case of mutual fund, right? So it's like, yeah, I, the, I have to say it's um, ETFs are great in that they allow you obviously the fast and quick exposure, which when you're systematic, you know, is phenomenal because even if the funds, you know, maybe one day, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I'd love to see that get to you know real size. I can then you know the rotations won't affect the underlying holdings because the underlying holdings are as liquid and as large as it gets. Right. So that's a big part of it. Um, I, I, I ETFs, I, I have interesting feelings on broadly for the just general public separate from my funds as a structure, even though I use them only because all kinds of studies show that people tend to over trade based on gut feeling and based on however they view the markets. And when you're in a world where there's no more commissions to trade, and you're in a world where you can get in and out of, in quotes, the market and ETF within a second, it actually, I'd argue, hurts investor returns longer term because it encourages them to do all the wrong things. Maybe it tempts them. It tempts them. So it's, it's I'm a big, big fan of ETFs if you're going to do it the right way. But I think a lot of people don't look at ETFs the right way. So I stepped on you a couple of times, Josh. Did you want to step back in? Josh is a big guy. You don't want to step on him. <laughs>
I know I don't. You see how you see how polite I'm being? No, you're, you're good. Um, no, that actually turned my mind somewhere else. So you you pr proceed there. Well, I was going to add real quick. I think um, you know the the touching on last year, right, and kind of what what happened. So all three of my funds, ATAX, the mutual fund, Roro, and JoJo, the bond fund on JoJo. Again, they all rely on the flight to safety behavior of treasuries. Right. So somebody last year seeing equities down would say, you know, uh, you probably had a good year. Now, I used to always put out this uh, video clip uh, and this ad on Twitter. And the copy of the ad was to kill it in the stock market. You have to not get killed. Right. Which is basically just saying you have to, you know, protect on the downside because down capture is more than up capture. And there would invariably be comments by people showing performance of Roro, which was going through a deep drawdown, saying killed. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the, the what happened last year is that people don't realize it wasn't that uh, the stock market got killed. It was actually that treasuries got killed. It was the failure of the flight to safety trade. First time in history in a top 20 drawdown that long duration treasuries lost more money than equities and totally failed to act as that counter volatility hedge in high volatility sequences. That, by the way, is a very different phenomenon and dynamic than most people uh, think about. Most people last year, they say it was obvious stocks and bonds would lose money. Okay, I don't disagree. For the end point, that doesn't tell me the fact that in that process, 59% of the weeks, the S&P 500 lost money, the most since 1931 as a percentage of the year. 74% of the weeks last year, long duration treasuries lost money as a percentage of the year, most ever in history. So here I am with these three funds, Going back to the point about weekly, they're using weekly decisions to rotate risk on, risk off. And both your equity risk on and your treasury risk off have the same directional week after week sequence. So damn if you do, damn if you don't, right? You're trying to rotate to treasuries. They don't work. Then you try to rotate to equities. They don't work. And you're going back and forth, back and forth. Your opportunity set screws you because the, the correlation of the path was so high, right? Now, <coughs> last year could have played out very differently. Last year could have been the exact opposite. It could have been uh, treasuries collapsing hard in the first six months while equities held, and then equities collapsing last six months while treasuries held. That sequence would have been fine. By the end of the year, equities and, and bonds would have both been down. But a sequence like that, I would have had a much better chance in. Which also brings another point real quick, which is that I always go back to it's more than a signal, it's opportunity set. So the bulk of the year, all the signals that are used in all the funds were largely in defense risk off mode, meaning they were saying volatility in equities is likely to be higher. Utilities are strong the bulk of the year. Lumber to gold was weak the bulk of the year. Um, you were below moving average the bulk of the year, right? Okay, so the signals were right to say defense. The expression of defense treasuries was wrong. Now, the thing is, had instead of using treasuries, any of those funds used, for example, the dollar or used gold, or use the utility sector, all of which are also risk-off beneficiaries, performance would have been dramatically different with the exact same timing, all right? So it's like there's all these nuances to this business, and it goes back to the only way I can get people to be aware of that is by being loud because that's such a nuanced conversation that you need people to pay attention. Did you ever look in, and this actually comes from, from my dissertation, um, did you ever look at, like, well, you you know the dividend aristocrats index. Yeah, sure. you, yeah. Do you ever look at that? Is the uh, the flight to quality part of the trade? 
yeah, so so there is a link between that and, and utility. So it's, it's you know, right? The risk anything that's dividend, let's say it's back. Okay, uh, when you when your risk on an environment in volatility is low, investors favor capital appreciation, which is really kind of you know growth plays, right? Um, when you're in in a high volatility environment, investors favor in general dividends because you at least know that independent of what the underlying asset's doing, you're going to get that income stream, right? Barring cuts on dividends, so there's a link there, right? So High volatility tends to cause a shift towards, you know, uh, who cares if I'm not getting paid now by the company, I'll get paid later versus I want the safety and knowledge of knowing I'm getting paid now in the volatility. Now, there, there, and there's, no, there's no question, because I've tested this, that dividend uh, weighting in high volatility regimes tilting towards utilities, staples, and healthcare, all of which are dividend plays, defensive plays, that yes, that ends up playing well in high volatility regimes and if you rotate around either the S&P or S&P low vol or S&P dividends as your defensive uh, expression yeah you do really quite well you beat the S&P lowering your beta and, and increasing your dividend exposure at the right time but you end up getting much more convexity with treasuries because when you're in a real bear market a real volatility decline again taking last year out of the equation the you're still beta so you're still going to go down with the market you go down less you might beat the market by 200, 300 basis points, 2 to 3% on uh, on an absolute basis. But if you're in treasuries, you get that right, the spread can be substantial. So much more of just an aggressive play. I mean, if you want to be not as wrong playing defense, you want to do that with dividend stocks. If you want to be really right playing defense, you have to play treasuries. I'm looking at you, Josh. Uh, it's a it's a much that doesn't surprise me at all because it's a much bolder statement. And uh Michael Guyad likes bold statements. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't know. He's been kind of tame. I'm, I'm no, it's the same. I know. I know. No, try. I know. No, my kids. Um, my I, one of my one of my kids is interning with us, and she says you're, you're like a completely different person when I see you on screen compared to who you are around here. She goes, your, your voice is completely different and your enthusiasm is, is different. And I said, well, yeah, that's because I love the industry more than my family. No, um, <laughs> it sounds like a you problem. But, as well. yeah, yeah. It's, by the way, speaking of bold statements, that's why, so all this, by the way, is connected to why I keep saying, I don't believe the bear market is over, which sounds really weird, right? So first, on the one hand, I've, I said, and I, I maintain this, that because we're in a pre-election year, pre-election years historically are the strongest in the four-year presidential cycle, that this would be a melt-up year. But I cautioned everybody at the start of the year saying, I think it's going to be a melt-up year, but there's still a credit event out there, which sounds inconsistent. How can we melt up and there's a credit event? It's like, well, that's what happened in 1987. 1987 was a pre-election year. The Dow was up 38% at its peak. And then you had, you know, the 87 crash, credit, effectively credit events, big spike credit events, same thing. Um, and then the Fed pivoted. Now, the reason I keep saying I think we're in a bear market is I keep I keep going back to that point. Last year was the first time in history long duration treasuries lost more money than equities in a major drawdown for equities. Or is it? Because we actually don't know if the drawdown is over. Because you're still in it. Right? You say like you're not you're not technically, I'd argue, in a bull market based on percentages. You're in a bull market only with hindsight when you've taken out the prior high when you've crawled back from the drawdown. Otherwise, if you're still in a drawdown, the distinction between bear and bull markets are relevant. And we got like 10% to go for that. Ah, okay. So for the S&P, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. although on a real return basis, not so much. 
I mean, after inflation, you need, I put that tweet out before, it's like at 5% inflation, you know, uh, accounting for the inflation we've already had in the prior peak, you still need like 20 some odd percent from here on a real adjusted basis. And I get it, people trade nominal, I understand that, right? But, you know, just is more perspective. But also it goes back to which market. So, okay, sure, that's the case for the NAS, for the S&P, for NASDAQ's a lot less, right, given the, the AI move. Um, but small caps are still very, very far from the peak. Emerging markets are very, very far from the right? Like the vast majority of the marketplace, which does not fall under the home bias and availability heuristic of the S&P 500 and U.S. equities, you're still in a pretty deep, nasty decline. And even within the U.S. market, you look at the retailer stocks. You know, use, use XRT as the proxy, right, as for retailers. Like, they just bounce around, and there's still a pretty big gap from the prior highs. So we are in this interesting environment where the framework of 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 uh, us being close to prior highs is I think deceptive because we're largely back or closer to the prior highs, not because the vast majority of stocks are closer to the prior highs, but because the market cap weighting of a select number of stocks is driving that. And that right, and that's that's the Pareto principle on steroids now. Yeah, this is also the the the, the problem with you know, it's like even measures of risk don't always really fully describe risk. Um you know, because if you're taking the risk of an index and um, and the index is mostly most of the advances due to a few stocks. And just to revisit this for some of our listeners, the S&P 500 is a cap weighted index. That means that the size of the company um, determines what its weight is in the index. So the bigger the company, the more of every dollar that you invest in an S&P 500 index fund, the more pennies out of that dollar are invested in a particular company. So if Apple is, is it seven or 8% of the index, something like that, seven or 8% of the index. So if Apple is, let's say 7% of the S&P 500, then for every dollar you put into a S&P 500 index fund, seven cents of that dollar is going into Apple. Well, it's something like the top, eight stocks is 25% and top 10 is 30 or something like that. I forget exactly, but you know, you're, you're, you're picking like 10 stocks for like a third of your, of your total investment. So it just so happens that those stocks have done extremely well, not just for a short amount period of time, but a long period of time, but especially beginning of this year, this is a story we were talking about several years ago about how, uh, about how much of the index was, was pulled up by the, um, by the top of the market. But this is even more intense now. So you've got just a small group of stocks that are causing the index to go up where market breadth, which is how many of the stocks, what percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 are actually going up? Well, that's not been looking very good. So breadth, in other words, the amount of stocks that are participating in the market going up have gone down. So when you're looking at risk and you look at the numbers of them all thrown together, what you're missing in that summary statistic, which is taking a lot of things and putting it together and what I call dumbing it down. And we love to simplify things. We love to dumb it down. But in situations like this, it can leave some risk where you don't really detect in a summary statistic because as Michael was alluding to earlier, things tend to return to a mean right? There tends to be a mean reversion. In other words, mean is the average. 
And, you know, if I have a amazing day today, I probably shouldn't expect tomorrow to be just as amazing. There's probably going to be more of a reversion to me. And this happens in the markets as well. So when you're looking at a summary, you don't see that, well, we've had so much of the rise has been these stocks. Am I going to have a mean reversion on the bad stocks too, or just the good stocks? Are the bad stocks going to kind of stay bad or stay not good, at least not good, when the good stocks revert and and and, and come back to, to earth, if you will? So, And you don't see that in a summary statistic, and you don't see that um, it's one of the things that's really another thing that's plagued active managers in equities is, you know, if you're an active manager and you're and you're looking at a risk mandate, one of the things you look at is diversification between companies. And so you are not wanting to put all of your portfolio in the stocks that you're going to think that you think are going to perform the best just because you know that if you're wrong, it can be catastrophic. Right. So you're managing to risk before you're managing to potential return because you get killed with risk, right? That's that's the thing that you're that you're trying to avoid. A fund manager is typically going to avoid risk before they pursue return. Right? So if you're just if your mandate is maximize potential return, then you're going to make a lot more bold decisions than if you first have a risk mandate that you have to stay within. If you have a risk mandate that you have to stay within first, then you've got to say, I can't concentrate my portfolio, which means that even if I think that this stock is going to be the best in the market, I still won't allocate too much to it because if I'm wrong, it will it will it will take up a big portion of the portfolio, it will really pull the portfolio down. So this is kind of the thing is we when the market we we want the best of the opportunity set, but the first layer is usually a a a risk uh, set set of risk criteria that has to be met before we can determine what 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 risk we're going to take. So this environment where only a few stocks prop up the market makes index funds look very good because they're going to maximize risk all the time. Well, and that blows people's mind because people typically think it's index funds is well, I minimize my risk as an index fund. That's wrong. No, the when in an index fund, you're always, always, always investing in momentum. You're always investing in more money into whatever is, is getting bigger. If, if you're dollar cost averaging into an index fund, then every single month you're buying more of what has done well recently. And you're buying less of what has not done well recently, right? So you're basically buy high, sell higher, right? I mean, exactly, exactly. So in an index fund, you're, the, the, the one thing I'll, I'll tell investors sometimes is in an index fund, the goal is to get every penny that the market goes up when it goes up and the goal is to go get every penny it goes down when it goes down. That's not the goal of, of, of active management. So it's interesting. You know, it's another aspect of this whole active issue now is when there's just a few stocks propping up the market, it makes active management much tougher because you've still got a risk mandate that requires you to consider the concentration you have in individual names, which is not an issue for an index fund, but eventually will come back to be an issue. Right, exactly right. and it's it's um 
So the stat is is 25% of the top uh, 10 of the S&P. I think it's not top, top 10 or 10, top 5. Might be top 5. Top 5 of the S&P is like uh, uh, 25% of the S&P. So most ever, <coughs> excuse me, in history. And then for the uh, Qs, NASDAQ 100. In 2013, the top 10 names made up 49% of the Qs. Now they make up 60% of the Qs. And it's like, for all the people that are saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. Okay. So in 10 years, when the top 10 stocks then make up 70% of the Qs, 80% of the Qs, it's like, at what point are you no longer a fiduciary? Because you're in a diversified index, which has idiosyncratic risk. Like, I actually think this is kind of interesting just from a... Um, just from like a risk mitigation, mitigation, career risk mitigation perspective, and even legal liability mitigation, right? Like if it used to be the case that, uh, you know, somebody that's older is going to go into the S&P 500, and now the S&P 500 is largely driven by just some names. It's like, well, you know, did you do your fiduciary duty then, putting that person in this index fund, which is not really an index fund, given the concentration, right? So it's there's a lot of interesting implications if this were to continue. Now, that's a big question to your point about the meaner version. Is it going to continue? Now, I am of the mindset that, you know, a, a market divider cannot stand, right? That at some point, this, this, these two market dynamics have to, because it really is two different markets, right? The S&P and everything else, the large cap tech, else. So at some point, I think there has to be some kind of convergence. The question is which way. I would argue that it probably has to be more from the large cap side catching down, not because I'm a perma bear, but because the reality is there's a well-known behavioral finance uh, bias called the disposition effect. So people are, are predisposed to, when faced with uncertainty, sell their winners first, not sell their losers. Because when you have a losing uh, investment, you want to get back to break even. So if you're in an environment where there's only a select number of uh, narrow winners, and then suddenly you're hit with volatility or recession, or whatever it is, the first thing people are going to sell are those narrow winners, which then creates a cascade, right? And and causes the catch down, I'd argue. So we're at a juncture here where I'd argue that the behavioral uh, uh, biases uh, are going to clash with the weightings in a really nasty way. Yeah. This uh, reminds me of our conversation a few weeks ago on the equal weighted index uh, and all the money moving in, in into that, which of course is um, a bet that, uh, that things will catch up. It's, uh, it's basically saying there's going to be a reversion to mean and, um, best case scenario that uh, the 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 rest of the market that hasn't been gone going up goes up and goes up by more than the the top goes down. <laughs> yeah, the the thing with the equal weighted, I was thinking about that after after we were talking about it, and you know they it's not like they're rebalancing it every day, right? So yeah. you're still getting you know more exposure to Apple and Microsoft because they're close to all time highs relative to other stocks in the equal weighted. Um, they're still the biggest stocks in the equal weighted, right? But the spread is yeah. a lot tighter. But it's not it's not nearly not nearly as huge. Yeah, and the equal weighted index for, for those who may not remember or didn't see that episode is is basically you're taking all the stocks in the S and P 500 and giving them equal weight. So you end up with well, not, this is not exactly the true true every day as they were mentioning. They don't rebalance it every day, but the the theory, the underlying idea is that you start with the same amount of every single stock rather than weighting them based on how big the company is. Which I would argue is better representation of, of even the economy. It's like, you know, for all the people that say small caps don't matter, it's like I'm pretty sure that small businesses drive the vast majority of employment. I, I agree. The only thing I would say is, you know, I, 
you know, a dollar invested in Apple is much less meaningful than a dollar invested in, you know, somebody that's ranked number four, 490. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah 100%. Takes a lot yeah. less to move the needle for sure. Right. Uh, the majority of the biggest stocks in the equal weighted index right now are travel related. Mm. That Car- Carnival, Delta, Southwest, Norwegian Cruise Lines are all in the top 10 holdings of that right now yeah so yeah that's uh that makes that's, me very i would bearish. not have guessed that but that, that makes me very bearish given uh, the airbnb <laughs> that's taking place so i'm gonna pivot just a little bit here michael um why are you so angry with nvidia yeah why what did it ever do to you yeah it's a good, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah i did it i did first of all the original uh uh when i started going after nvidia i, uh, <laughs> I was doing it because I could, it was it, i was making more of an example of why it's not a healthy market if you have just I, one yeah, stock yeah. right it's, it was more i was trying to more point towards it as an example of sort of what's wrong with the current environment sure but um and, but as and for saying, those of you who may not be uh just catch folks up nvidia is the poster child for what we're talking yeah, about AI right now of just a few names really carrying the market. So right, so it's kind of it was kind of more me ranting on that. But then I started seeing that I was getting a lot of engagement saying that envy is you know with the F word, um, and and uh, and I, it it got to be actually really interesting. So I mean I have no position in Nvidia. I could give a damn what happens to the stock price, right? I mean it's, it's more an example of the environment, but it's like. People started then going after me because I started saying that, and then the the earnings uh, hit, and then the stock was up huge, right? And all the uh, options traders started saying, "Oh, look at this guy! He's so wrong with Nvidia." It's like, okay, have fun with your PE stock of two hundred plus, right? Uh, price earnings with a valuation that high. So I, I started going after Nvidia because I, one, I thought it was kind of funny, right? Two, it's the poster child to your point about everything that's wrong with the intermarket internals of uh, what we're investing in. But then I also think it's an interesting tell on sentiment. So I've used this, this I made this point before. And by the way, I use AI myself, right, for some copy on things that I'm doing when I'm too busy to actually sit down and write myself, right, for, for certain tweets like Twitter space titles. I use AI for that, right? Twitter tweets on spaces, I use AI for that. So it's not, I, I get the appeal. But one, AI has been around forever. It's not new. Okay, yeah, it's more accessible, but it's not new. Okay. Two, um, the sentiment is very reminiscent to me of what happened with the Bitcoin cryptocurrency top. Oh, it's exactly the same. Sentiment. And and what is that sentiment? We should define what that sentiment is. The sentiment that matters for most is uh, overconfidence, right? It's, It's that you become so convinced of a future based on the narrative of the now that it causes you to totally not want to hear or listen to any opposing view and if any opposing view comes your way, your natural response is not to debate, but to insult. So I saw that in the midst of the Bitcoin cryptocurrency top, which is why I put the lumber and gold eyes, because, again, I'm you know, a jerk and I wanted to kind of push it back in their face. And I was right about that. Right. Because it's not, it's not about being even right or wrong. It's just about sort of identifying you know, the ugliness of uh, extreme greed and how oftentimes extreme greed makes people more poor than not. Right. So that's, that's number one. Like, like more money has been lost in cryptocurrency than has been made in cryptocurrency when you have leverage. And that's a good example. Same thing with the metaverse, right? It's like all the metaverse stuff was, was all hype. Everyone's falling for a narrative. And it's like, what, there's like four people, right, that actually use it. And, you know, more people play the Sims from the 1990s and use the metaverse. But you had these insane valuations. And with NVIDIA, it's a similar dynamic. I see the same 
narratives, the same overconfidence, the same, um, sounds like a strange way to say it, but a lot of, uh, now I'm going to sound like old man, a lot of youth buying the AI narrative. And it's like that old uh, uh, Oscar Wilde quote, right? Like I'm, uh, I'm not young enough to know everything. Yeah. Right. Uh, which is a good quote, right? But my point is like, you know, so, so, yeah, I, 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 I poke at it continuously because I see the same parallels. Now, I would love to see this dynamic break. And again, I go back to what's my bias. My bias is I don't want to see pure risk on. I don't want to see pure large caps, which is why I'm biased against NVIDIA and why I'm mm-hmm. biased against Apple and biased against Microsoft because those are, those are symptoms of the very cycle that's problematic for my world. I got you. So I the the one thing with AI, the 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 Bitcoin parallel that I that keeps popping into my mind, uh, people would talk about Bitcoin or it blo- more blockchain than Bitcoin, but blockchain being um, a solution looking for a bunch of problems. And I think AI is the same is the same way. And in both cases, uh, how, how, how do you make money off of it is what it right, really no, comes down to. And there's yeah. that that's. You ever see the old um, South Park episode where they have the underwear gnomes? No, but I'm joking. No, no it, it was like in the first season. And basically these gnomes, they, they have a plan. And they, they, they steal underwear. And then there's a big question mark. And then it says profits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah, same, exactly. same exact yeah. thing with Bitcoin. Same exact thing in my mind, at least with AI. It's cool yeah, to play around with, but... Yeah, and the efficiency dynamic is real. Don't like don't worry, but it's like, all right, so... Okay, so take it to the logical extreme. So the argument for for any technology is that you replace jobs, but then people learn new skills and they go into new industries and it's a net positive. Okay, the that that may work when you didn't have an exponential uh, growth curve, right? So so the problem is for all the people screaming around artificial intelligence and AI, if it's true, if all these narratives are real, there's going to be mass layoffs very very soon because companies are going to say, why should I even bother? having a copywriter, having an ad team, having whatever it is, because ChatGPT can do it. Okay, well, these people are going to learn new skills and they'll be fine. Okay, but the problem is by the time they learn new skills, AI's probably learned those other new skills already. Because humans are naturally linear in the way we learn and educate ourselves, right? Whereas, you know, coding is and, and algorithms are not. So my point is like, you know, people got to be really careful what they wish for. This, this narrative that AI is going to be a net positive for the economy assumes that people will still have jobs, at least the vast majority of people will have jobs, which normally wouldn't be a problem if your starting point with all this happening isn't extreme leverage. But when your starting point is extreme leverage, you better hope that AI doesn't take over your job. Oh, absolutely. So so it's got to continuously try to stay ahead of all of that, which um, awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm aging out of it. <laughs> yeah, we're all, if you, even if you're going to be in your 20s, you'll be aging out of it. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like There's a lot of interesting implications. And then you know, some of this news spoke of idiosyncratic risk. You know, we're recording this on the 28th in June. There was some headline, right, that said uh, Biden administration's uh, debating uh, uh, preventing the sale of NVIDIA AI chips or something along those lines to China. So, yeah, it's like these things are going to happen. You're going to have now the government trying to push back on some of this stuff, which is the very idiosyncratic risk that you don't want if you're holding the S&P. Because now NVIDIA drags down the S&P as, as there's uncertainty about you know, the, the legislature and, and what happens as far as new laws and, and mandates, right? So, again, there's a lot of nuances to the stuff that are missed by the momentum-chasing FOMO crowd who don't care about any narrative except the one that fits their own. Yeah, the more you're depending on fewer factors, then the mo- the more those factors become emotional factors. Right, exactly. The more factors become emotional factors, the more they are to lead to contagion that 
causes everything to get sick. And so, you know, that this is a problem with a few stocks and it's easy if you're invested you know, heavily in Apple or NVIDIA or something like that to say, yeah, go forever. But it is a risk building situation that there's only so much time where one stock or a few stocks can continue to separate themselves from everything else that will run out of steam. It has to, by definition, what are you going to do? Just start selling all of your other stocks and everybody only pile into these few stocks. What about the rest of the economy? And by the way, everything become, these things have to eventually grow, continue to grow to justify these things. So, you know, with a growth stock, you know, this is, this gets back to what you're talking about with, you know, rotation to dividend stocks during times of high volatility because of this psychology that says, you know, with with more, you know, this is not always the case, but typically value stocks are typically considered among the dividend payers and, and vice versa. So the dividend payers are saying, I know what I'm getting, right? So I'm getting paid now. Um, this is like, this is much like a covered call strategy, right? With a covered call strategy, it's saying I'm taking a guarantee of growth and I'm trading some potential upside for this in order to make sure I lock in some upside. And that's what you're doing with a, a dividend stock. Whereas with growth, you're saying, I'm settling for less now because I believe you're gonna pay me more later, right? And so the more you continue to push up the price of the of these types of stocks, the, the more growth you have to have later in, in order to justify these things. And of course, the less growth you have to justify the cost on the other end. So there's a lot of forces that are ultimately while it may seem like smooth sailing for a while and let's pile into these names it the weight has to come back there will be a there will be a pull and that's what gets scary about these things is what's going to cause that pull and how dramatic will it be you know how big will the crash be the more the more you're hopped up on caffeine the bigger your crash is going to be right the more you're the further you got a hand the the bigger the whipsaw becomes. Yeah. Now yeah, full part of our whipsaw conversation. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of whipsaws, uh, unfortunately, my calendar is very tight today, so I'm getting whipsawed with some uh, missed meetings. But maybe whenever the market actually does break down, we'll, we'll do another uh, one of these, and hopefully the funds will benefit from it so I can at least be uh, a little happier and curse less. <laughs> Absolutely. You're well, well behaved. Well, Michael, you've been extremely well behaved today. Yeah. You know, um, the the uh, None of the profanity that, that, that plagues the Twitter account. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. So what, what would you leave us with, uh, Michael? What's uh, before, until the next time we speak, what are we going to be talking about next time? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think is coming or, or what, 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 what should we call you the table about next time? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think the main thing will be like, you know, once, once the AI narrative at some point dies down and, and if there is a credit event, right, which is not something to be afraid of, but one that could be, you know, really interesting from an opportunity perspective, that'll be sort of the next major thing, right? It's, it's markets are not that interesting when uh, they're very smooth, right? I suspect that volatility comes back in a big way and hopefully it'll be a lot more interesting next time too. Awesome. Well, everyone, I want to remind you to like and follow and share, support the channel. We appreciate this. Uh, and, and special thanks, of course, uh, from Russell and I to Michael Guyad for joining us today. It's been, been great to have you, Michael. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. Thank you.